This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for February 14th, 2021. We're pleased to be exploring Doctrine and Covenants 12 through 17 and part of Joseph Smith history today with L. Ray Henriksen. I'm Rebecca Deschwinitz and along with fellow Dialogue Foundation Board members Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, I'm happy to welcome you all. If you're joining us for the first time, please know that all of our previous lessons are available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal with all of its spectacular art, poetry, personal essays, fiction, sermons, and scholarship. El Rey's lesson will be added to our list of previous lessons by the end of the day. If you enjoy having access to more than five decades of dialogue and these gospel study lessons, we invite you to make a contribution in support of the mission and ongoing work of dialogue. Simply go to the subscribe and donate link on our website. Those uh, uh, those with us live on Zoom this morning are welcome to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. I'll also keep track of what folks have to say on Facebook where we are also live. We look forward to integrating some of your comments and questions into today's lesson. We are thrilled to have Elroy Henriksen back with us today. Some of you might recall that he participated in Becky Rosler's lesson last October. And we are so grateful for her introducing him to us. Elroy grew up in an LDS family in Norway and Switzerland and served as a sergeant in the Norwegian Air Force before doing an undergraduate degree in peace and development studies focused on religious peace building at Bradford University in the UK. He completed a master's degree in 2007 in peace operations at George Mason University in Washington, DC, where he met his husband, he worked for the United Nations in uh, uh, Burundi and for the Norwegian Church Aid in Norway before moving to Brussels, Belgium, where he completed another master's in European communications, um, ordained to 70 in Community of Christ in 2018. He is currently uh, working as a full-time church volunteer. He has co-founded a local support organization called Co-Citizens and chairs the European Peace and Justice Team for the community of Christ in Europe. Dialogue is committed to providing a space for the expression of diverse perspectives from Latter-day Saint traditions. We are thankful for Elroy's preparation, his perspective and voice. As is always the case, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the community of Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or any other organization. We begin today with music. There's an old, old path performed by the Behind the Walls International Choir, which is associated with the Toronto Congregation of the Community of Christ in Canada. This hymn was written by Vida Elizabeth Smith, a granddaughter of Joseph Smith, while listening to a sermon in her home congregation in Lamoni, Iowa. And I'm gonna share a link um, in the chat that tells you, gives you a little bit more background um, but the words really reflect her experience feeling at home in the house of God. Her text was put to music by her cousin, Audentia Smith. After the music, our opening prayer will be offered by Adam McLean. Adam graduated uh, from Brigham Young University in 2017 with a degree in literature, editing, and women's studies while at BYU. He was managing editor of Leading Edge, the science fiction and fantasy magazine. 
editor-in-chief of AWE, A Woman's Experience, the Undergraduate J Journal of Women's Studies and an editorial intern at the Joseph Smith Papers. In 2020, he graduated from Harvard Divinity School with a Master's of Theological Studies in Women, Gender, Sexuality, and Religion. He is currently a media manager for Dialogue, uh, a journal of Mormon thought, and starting in the summer, he'll be a Harvard Frank Knox traveling fellow studying 20th century British dystopian literature and the legal history of sexual violence in the UK. I will also take this opportunity to share that Dr. Rebecca Roser, um, who will otherwise be participating along the way in today's lesson, will offer a closing blessing, and Elray will tell us more about that at the end. Uh, Dr. Rosler is a graduate of uh, UT Austin, uh, where her PhD was in music and human um, learning. She is a professor of violin and music education at BYU-Idaho. So that we can seamlessly close later, I'll also remind you about our Dialogue Fireside next Sunday evening with Jill Durr on Missing and Restoring Meaning. And I'll let you know that in two weeks on February 28th, same time, same place, we'll be pleased to have Kathy Stokes join us as our gospel study teacher. Finally, I wanted to give a shout out to our friends at Black LDS Legacy who are hosting their amazing annual conference next Saturday, February 20th. Their theme is Black Lives Matter and Eternal Truth. The amazingness and truth telling and hard work starts at 8.30 a.m. Mountain Time.
dear God, um, I come before thee as a representative of those that have gathered here for dialogue gospel study um, to thank you and offer our gratitude for Ellery's willingness to be our teacher today and to guide us through some of the, um, the words that we consider scripture. We ask that um, Ellery will be blessed in his deliverance of this and that we all will um, be edified and learn from his words and what he has to teach us. Um, for this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you. So Rebecca, is this the point where I start? Yep. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so here we are. Uh, in spite of computer issues and everything, I'm, I'm very happy to be uh, sharing with you today. And uh, thank you to Dialogue for having me. Uh, I hope this will be a fruitful session for all of us. Uh, I do realize that it's not often you've had Community of Christ members or ministers come present uh, in these classes. So I'm delighted to be able to share some of my personal insights into our readings for today, both as a former member of the LDS Church, but also as a member of Community of Christ today. My faith journey has brought me to where I am today, but I've continued to engage from time to time with what I would refer to as Mormon distinctives, such as the Book of Mormon uh, and Restoration History. Um, again, uh, it's been a long time since I stepped into an LDS meeting house. Uh, I did leave the LDS church in 2006. So I might not be totally updated on where the collective faith journey of the LDS church has taken many, many, uh, many of you. But I hope that what I'll share will enrich and bless our understandings. And like uh, it was said earlier uh, by Rebecca, whatever I say can and should hold be, be held only against me. Uh, I'm neither a historian nor a theologian, uh, or at least I don't feel I'm qualified uh, to say those things about myself, but I'll attempt with uh, the training I've received, uh, both in peace studies and, and uh, at Community of Christ Seminary over the last few years, uh, hopefully I'll have a few things to share um, that might be helpful. Uh, I like to step back normally to look at the big picture and, uh, and uh, I consider, for example, um, uh, the Book of Mormon and, uh, and as religious uh, American folklore. And that's, that's kind of my approach to it. But the class objectives here for today would be uh, um, Thinking, I was thinking of looking at three things. Um, explore community of Christ's approaches to church history and affirmations on scripture first. See how the three temptations of Christ in Luke 4 may have influenced the worldview of Joseph Smith. And that's uh, a hypothesis perhaps that I have uh, and that I'm continuing to explore. I've been kind of thinking about that for a while now. And uh, if any of you who are participating here today know of evidence linking Luke 4, for, 
for example, to Joseph Smith's worldview uh, in terms of uh, previous historic uh, scholarship that has been done, I'd be happy to hear about it. Uh, and finally, uncover the rele relevance of early restoration history for the 21st century through modern day themes. When we look at community of Christ church history principles, um, a couple of things stand out. I'm only focusing on excerpts of our history, uh, history principles, but uh, you can easily find them on the uh, internet. Uh, but it might be helpful to cover some of these because engaging in shared history can be a complex endeavor. We might have different emphasis on different events and different views on what might have transpired and how we interpret those historical events. Uh, history informs but does not dictate community of Christ's faith or beliefs. It is part of our tradition, but it doesn't have to be a determining factor for who we are or who we want to become. Even though it is part of our tradition, it's part of our history, it's part of our sacred story. Um, Community of Christ encourages honest, responsible historic scholarship. And when we see both the faithfulness and the human flaws in our history, it becomes more believable and realistic, not less. This leads us to the next point that the responsible study of church history must involve learning, repentance, transformation. And finally, Community of Christ does not legislate or mandate positions on matters of church history. So we might come back to some of these uh, his history principles, but I just thought it would be good to have them as a foundational platform as we start. Uh, here you see the Independence Missouri Temple in the foreground. And in the background there is the uh, LDS uh, Visitor Center in Independence, Missouri. Uh, this is the Community of Christ Temple, and I thought you might appreciate seeing also this iconic shell-shaped building um, before we look exactly at the affirmations on scripture. First of all, Jesus Christ is the living word of God, and it is to Christ that scripture points. And we find the living word in and through scripture. Uh, Scripture is itself a library of books that speak in many voices. These books were written in diverse times and places and reflect the languages, cultures, and conditions under which they were written. So scripture's authority is, deri is derived from the model of Christ. This is a very important point. Uh, model of Christ who came to be a servant. Therefore, the authority of scripture is not the authority to oppress, control or dominate. This has been reiterated in, uh, in um, a Community of Christ Doctrine and Covenants section um, 163, I think. So, so that's, a, that's a very important point as to where we are today with Community of Christ in relation to scripture. Scripture is vital and essential to the church, but not because it is inerrant, meaning that every detail is historically or scientifically correct. And with other Christians, we affirm the Bible as the foundational scripture for the church. In addition, Community of Christ uses the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants as scripture. 
but we do not use these sacred writings to replace the witness of the Bible or to improve upon it, but because they confirm the message that Jesus Christ is the living word of God. So as we will see with section 12 in uh, the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, so just to make uh, things easier, we have different uh, um, chapter um, identifications for the different sections in Doctrine and Covenants of Community of Christ and Doctrine and Covenants of the LDS Church. Uh, there are some um, tables on, the, uh, on Wikipedia that inform the differences between those. Um, but I call this section 12, the commission, because almost every words, I mean, almost every verse from this section is inspired by or can be found almost word for word in King James version of the Bible. I love that. I think that's fantastic because it, 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 it binds or it brings Joseph Smith to, uh, to the Bible and to the biblical account. So without doing an exegetical exercise based on these scriptures in the New Testament, it's sufficient for me to note that Joseph Smith, when asked about the individual calling early enthusiasts to the restoration story had with regards to the gospel, Smith did not come up necessarily with completely new words or new concepts, but he probably more likely adapted some of these concepts and ideas to his time. He chose to speak of the great and marvelous work that was about to come forth among the children of men. And this for me is not exactly the same word, but I see in Revelations 15, great and marvelous are thy works, O God. And, and I, I like to believe that this is a Revelations, uh, latter days kind of uh, presentation of, of the work of God. Um, Another thing to note here is that bringing forth and establishing the cause of Zion, so further down the line, the next to the last, is be in pain and is taken from Micah 4.10, for me at least, be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. This image of a woman that labors to bring forth the kingdom of God on earth is a helpful imagery. I think of the messiness, the hard work, the travails of birthing a new creation. We'll get back to some of those images later. But in essence, when it comes to the Book of Mormon or early sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, a question I've been asking myself for a while is the following. Can we rediscover or repurpose or understand the teachings and power of a young brown skinned Palestinian Jew on the outskirts of the Roman Empire in the first century through the interpretative reading of a young white farm boy on the outskirts of the British Empire in the 19th century. And the reason I ask this question is because it is important for me to situate Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith in his context and how he starts creating meaning and interpreting the word of God. There's another additional story I'd like to just touch upon at this stage that was important 
uh, an important moment in Community of Christ history. Our LDS leaders and Methodist seminary scholars gathered together to make sense of the very existence and the mission of the RLDS Church in 1967. Near the end of the first day session, a Professor Jones felt the need to pose a question that would have enormous implications for the future of the church. Jones needed to discover at the outset if, if the RLDS church was truly Christian. Jones mustered courage and directed himself to W. Wallace Smith, who was the president of the RLDS church at the time. And the RLDS church was the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now known as Community of Christ. And he said, if our mutual studies of Christianity and the RLDS church were to discover that there was a discrepancy between, between what Jesus taught and what Joseph Smith taught, which would you accept? And a profound silence settled in the room. Jones observed that time stopped and everyone seemed to understand the implications of the question. All eyes stared at the prophet who took a long breath, did not falter, but said with poise, we would have to go with Jesus. So in exploring the origin story of the Book of Mormon and early restoration history, I've chosen to use a New Testament lens, but looking specifically at Jesus in the wilderness, the three temptations and his mission statement in the synagogue when reading from the words of Isaiah. Isaiah. Uh, this is my Norwegian kind of Isaiah and Isaiah. Anyway, sorry. Why would I do such a thing? Well, because I believe Joseph Smith was imbued in biblical scripture. Um, I don't know if this is a reference that works in the US, but obelix and asterisk, uh, you know, the, the, these are car cartoon characters and obelix fell in the, in the big children when he, was a, when he was a baby and got the strength, enormous strength from that. And I do think that Joseph Smith grew up with the Bible in his home uh, in such a way that uh, the images and the, the power of, of uh, scripture uh, was important to him. Um, so now we're getting to uh, Luke 4, 1 to 19. And I've asked Becky uh, if she would read this passage for a scripture for us. And I want you to reflect because we are entering the season of Lent. It's a season of prayer and fasting for the next uh, 40 days. Uh, I, I think it's up to seven weeks actually, leading up to Easter week. And, uh, and because of that, I'd like you to think of moments in your lives and in our lives when we were tempted to do something unethical troubling or unjust. So I'll let you, uh, Becky, uh, read now. Okay, this is Luke 4, 1 through 19. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil, 
And in those days, he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto them, unto him, If thou be the son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And his custom, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Thank you, Becky. Uh, so I suppose this is probably one of my favorite scriptures. And that's probably why I'm starting to see it everywhere and everything I'm kind of engaged in. So I bet I ask you to bear with me as we proceed through the lesson. And uh, some of these things might pop up again. Uh, what parallels can we ask? So why does the writer of Luke refer to Jesus's temptation as a lonely wilderness experience? When have you been in a spiritual wilderness, uncertain about where to turn or not sure about what was right to do? And what parallels can we draw between Jesus's temptations in the wilderness, his consequent ministry in bringing about the kingdom of God on earth, and Joseph Smith's early attempts to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion 
within the American frontier. Well, let me just quickly go through the scripture again uh, and explain to you what I see when, when we read this. The temptations of, of Christ. Well, Jesus was tempted with turning stones into bread to uh, become an exploitive king, I would say. Uh, Jesus could have lived with every comfort of his time, not only just in order to fill his belly, but to meet his every desire. As a king, he could do all these things and he would have had economic power. He would be in control of labor and production. And the reason I'm kind of seeing these two things together is because he could have had people make bricks for money, bricks for bread. And he could build spacious buildings and cover them with ornamentations. I think Jesus was also tempted with glory, power and glory military glory and might to put under his feet kingdoms and nations. And these would be delivered unto him if he but only worshiped the devil. Finally, Jesus could have turned worship into circus. Um, by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, an angelic rescue would have led him to control the priestly class, control the ideological power of his day, control the meaning and interpretations of events, of his truth, which was that he was the son of God, the promised Messiah. But his rebuttal of this temptation was that you should not tempt your God. And I will try to unpack that further in the next slide. So Joseph Smith was guided to a treasure. And that was not for lack of trying to find one. But the treasure he ultimately found had spiritual value. And I want to explore its relationship with the three temptations of Jesus. In Doctrine and Covenants 17, and now I'm bringing us to the lesson, uh, the treasure is listed as golden plates, the sword of Laban, Urim and Thummim, and the Liahona. I will focus on the three first artifacts, as I believe the Liahona has potentially other meanings, but I'm still exploring what that is. So I'm, you know, it's not a, we're not finished here. You know, this is still in exploration. Um, and uh, can you see then that the golden plates are not only precious metal, but that they contain in Joseph Smith's story with the Book of Mormon, the word of God. So instead of turning stones into bread, the first temptations of Christ, the, the first temptation of Christ, God would have led Joseph to precious metal that pointed to the very word of God, Jesus Christ. The sword of Laban is not just any sword. It is the sword that Nephi used in the Book of Mormon narrative within the first pages of the book to decapitate the sword's owner. I consider Nephi to be a trickster in this case, an unreliable first person narrator in the Book of Mormon uh, narrative because he seemingly justified things that are reliably untrue. Specifically, the idea that the Lord delivered Laban, delivered Laban into his hands and that the Lord slays the wicked for righteous purposes. 
a similar sentiment I feel that could be found in the second temptation of Christ. For that is delivered unto thee, and I have the power to give it unto thee. The use of the name of Laban is telling here from the Old Testament story where Laban tricks uh, Jacob, I think, into marrying Leah before Rachel. However, this link, this link makes for me a Nephi an unreliable narrator as catalyst of the epic story found in the Book of Mormon. We know that the spirit uses the words of Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, in, the, uh, or in the New Testament, uttered after the arrest to justify the killing of Laban. It is better for one man to die than for a whole nation to dwindle in unbelief. And here I'm asking myself a question. When the spirit of God quotes Caiaphas, the executioner of God, Jesus, you know something is amiss. So it is better to consider the words of Jesus at his arrest to understand what is at stake here. Jesus rebukes Peter, who took up the sword, so a better and possibly implied moral lesson when it comes to Laban's sword used in his own killing is, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So in essence, God led Joseph Smith to a sword that decapitated its own owner, Laban. This seems to be in greater harmony with what I think is uh, Jesus' words, not that Nephi was justified in doing the killing, but that Laban was doomed at the moment of his threatening Nephi and brothers with violence. Violence or the threat of it begets further violence. Finally, and sorry, I took a bit of time on this one, but I think it's gonna be important for later. Uh, finally, the interpreters associated with the crossing of the seas in the book of Ether, uh, in the book of Mormon, the brother of Jared went and inquired of God if God could touch them with his finger so that they might give light. God touched the stones, which caused the brother of Jared to fear mightily for his own life at first, when he saw God had a body like unto himself. God said, what will you that I should do that you might have light in your vessels? For behold, you cannot have windows for they will be dashed in pieces. For the mountain waves will dash uh, upon you. And for me, this dash is a fun link to the third temptation. And in their hands, they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. The word dash means to hit something with great force and causing damage. And the stones are referred to as Urim and Thummim. Uh, this is mentioned in the Old Testament uh, in connection with the breastplate of judgment of the children of Israel and the priestly ministry of Aaron uh, and of his sons. So I'm, I'm, there's a lot of images here, uh, so just bear with me. But I think this is what's happening in, in uh, the process of early restoration history. There's a lot of images. It's very symbolic. It's very biblical. Uh, the stones have to do with exodus, with liberation from slavery. But Jesus in the story of the temptations hints back at the time when Moses was told by God to use his rod to hit the rock to give water in Massa. 
for the people were thirsty. And the children of Israel tempted God by asking God the very question Satan asked of Jesus, is God with you or not? This is the question the children of Israel asked uh, Moses, is God with us or not? If he is, he will give us water. So God led Joseph Smith to stones of light to interpret the word and will of God, yes, but they were not to serve as a sign as to whether or not God was with him. Literally what happened in the affair of the lost manuscripts in the hands of Martin Harris. So that sets kind of the, the stage for where we are kind of going now. These artifacts for me represent a material theology or a visual theology because uh, we know that the, the witnesses saw them and some of them touched them, if I remember right. But it enables the witnesses and us by association to appreciate how they both, how they both represented a temptation or how they all represented a temptation for Joseph Smith. And that the resolution to that temptation was possible if used wisely and with the artifacts redeeming quality in mind. I believe and I'm exploring the symbolic value. They contain within them the story of the Book of Mormon. It's symbolic treasure that points us to potentially understanding of the Book of Mormon better, how the Book of Mormon is built up, how the Book of Mormon uh, brings us from one story to another, but also how Jesus was confronted in proclaiming the kingdom of God. So I will explore how these constitute the temptations we all face in exercising power in society today. Should we use the power of gold for gain? Should we use the power of sword for power and glory, for glory? And should we use the power of story for conceit? Well, Joseph Smith could use the golden place to get gain because his family lived in poverty, but he could also translate the plates with an eye single to the glory of God. Joseph could be justified in using the gun or the sword as revenge or for protection and thus use violence to gain control over his enemies. And finally, Joseph could tell stories and be justified in telling any story, not just the words of God, to solve any situation in which he ended up being in, including the situation of the lost manuscript that he himself had provoked by going against what he perceived to be God's will at the time. However, with every artifact came a devotional opportunity, what I think is an escape from evil. The same way Jesus uh, used rhetoric and used the scripture in facing the temptations. With the golden plates, Joseph could establish and bring forth Zion and not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. With the sword of labor, he was reminded to serve God and worship God only and not seek power through force. And finally, with the Urim and Thummim, he would have been reminded to not tempt God and trust that God would redeem humanity in God's own time. 
This leads me to some additional questions for reflection. How are we affected by greed? What reminder can we use to ensure for ourselves that our focus is on establishing and bring forth Zion? How do we take part in violent solutions to society's problems? Have we been ever tempted to seek power through coercive means? And what influence do we have over others in virtue of our ideas or stories? What daily reminder can we use to ensure that we do not tempt God for the needs of our own egos? I believe that the three witnesses were a profess, uh, uh, they were a fulfillment of prophecy in the Book of Mormon. I mean, that's, that's the idea. But I like to look at them as signposts, if you will, as friend reminders of the dangerous tendencies that could inhibit or, um, what do you say in English, uh, that could destabilize Joseph Smith's prophetic ministry. These three witnesses, these three friends, were there to help in getting the Book of Mormon published to the world and called to proclaim repentance and truth and truth to their generations, to their own generation. But also, and this is what I think, to reflect back to Joseph Smith which, which pathways that could be dangerous to undertake. Martin Harris was a prosperous farmer. David Whitmer was a former militia sergeant and Oliver Cowdery was a school teacher. And thus all three had qualities that Joseph Smith lacked and would need and use in his prophetic ministry. But the witnesses committed themselves to help, in, in a, to help him in a certain narrative, an early narrative of what, are, of what we refer to as the developing theology of Joseph Smith. Uh, this early narrative, I like to look at it as the headlines of the gospel of the restoration. For each of them had to give something up to accompany Joseph Smith on his mission, on his prophetic quest. Uh, Harris, most likely, I mean, I, I'm basing what did they have to give up? I'm basing that on the Doctrine and Covenants scriptures that are listed here below. Uh, from 1918 and 6, I kind of went outside of our reading to kind of look for uh, clues to what uh, Joseph Smith or how God speaks through Joseph Smith to these three witnesses. Um, Harris had to give up some of his fortune to help finance the printing of the Book of Mormon. David Whitmer was reminded that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God insomuch that the Redeemer suffered in the flesh the pain of all men, and that they might repent and come unto him. In this sense, I think David Whitmer had to give up the sword, much like Peter. And finally, Oliver Cowdery had to give up his pride, his desire to use the power of story for conceit itself. He was commanded to bring many to the knowledge of the truth and convince them of the error of their ways. These revelations given to, through Joseph Smith to these men sound very much like callings, foundational callings in the early restoration story. 
They must have come to define who these men were and what principles that would guide them. Harris, generosity towards the children of God. Whitmer, long-suffering towards the children of God. And Cowdery, truth-telling towards the children of God. And just a side note on Oliver Cowdery, if you read the Joseph Smith history and then the Oliver Cowdery account that follows uh, at the end, you'll see, and hopefully we might have some time, but I'm just saying it now because I think we might run out of, out of time, but there is some great lines there about truth, error, deceit, and, and really interesting stuff to that, that complements this uh, Doctrine and Covenants 6.11. However, by 1838, all was not well in Zion. The three witnesses had by then become dissenters, and perhaps it was their principled behavior that led them to, and I'm really, I'm here, I'm on thin ice, as we say in Norwegian, and, uh, uh, but this is my take on it. Uh, perhaps it was their principled behavior that led them to question, challenge, and ultimately separate themselves from the early church. Because the conflicts were real and the challenges enormous for the little church at that time. Joseph Smith said now of the three witnesses that they were too mean to mention and we had liked to have forgotten them. Wait, 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 not so fast. That's my, that's my kind of wait a moment. The Kirkland Safety Society was set up to generate a local currency and money for the many poor that were coming to gather in Zion at the time. Martin Harris did not join the anti-banking company. He must have been concerned about some of the principles behind it and their enforcements, as he called it a fraud. The banking endeavor ultimately failed and many apostatized at this time. David Whitmer and other dissenters were threatened by violence, were threatened with violence by the Danite Manifesto, this group of vigilantes that were there to keep some people in line uh, within the church. And he had to flee with his family to Richmond, Missouri. The Danites were later engaged in the Mormon-Missouri War. Understandably, many felt threatened by the use of violence or force in this context. And it happened on several sides, let's put it that way. Um, finally, Oliver Cowdery was being sidelined in terms of positioning in the church. Oliver then challenged Joseph Smith on the issue of Fanny Alger. And this was perhaps a very early confrontation of Joseph Smith's ensuing polygamy. And Oliver was at the time the assistant president of the church, but resigned at the time of his, communication, of his excommunication. Excommunication seemed perhaps then and now uh, still a, a practical tool for silencing dissent. So theoretically, or let's put it, looking at power, uh, the issue of power, uh, Lord Acton, who was a British Catholic who resisted the idea of the infallibility of the Pope, in the 19th century said the following words, I cannot accept 
your canon that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men with a favorable presumption that they do no wrong. If there is any presumption, it is the other way against holders of power. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Ethical dissenters, as we see today, are important because they hold power accountable. It is a biblical prophetic task against those who wield economic, military, or ideological power unchecked. In essence, that's why I started with the story of the temptations of Jesus. The temptations for Jesus, as we know now from the story, never went away. They ceased for a season, yes, but they were never, they were, they were never gone. People wanted to crown him king because he could feed the masses. The Roman soldiers crowned him king in mocking him because he refused to fight. And finally, in front of Pontius Pilate, Jesus seemingly admitted that he was a king, but for a kingdom not of this world. For had his kingdom been of this world, his disciples, his followers, would have done everything in their power. They would have fought so that he would not be delivered unto the Jews. So I'm, I'm looking at time here a bit. For those who are still with us, good, good, uh, well done. <laughs> and uh, I'll, uh, I'll try to, uh, I'll try to wrap up. But, uh, but there is a lot of uh, fun stuff still to explore. So, um, I don't know, Rebecca. What do you think? Don't feel pressured. No. People will leave if they need to, and the rest of us will, will enjoy. So. Okay, I'll, I'll share what I prepared. Uh, thank you. So the question for me is 200 years later, or even 2000 years later, the world stands at a crossroads. There is an important need for ethical dissent. The stakes are high in the face of the three existential threats. We have used power for gold, a power of gold for gain way too long. We have used the power of sword for glory with devastating effects. And we have used the power of story for conceit, confounding what the meaning of truth even is today. This has led us to these three civilizational excesses, the ex that extractive capitalism, global security of elite interest and polarizing echo chambers have on us. And the last one where our own data our own weaknesses, our own daily habits, our own who we are, I mean, being here, are used to manipulate us, direct us, potentially ensnare us. I mean, great technology, but what are the challenges that come with it? James Martin, a technological scientist, said at the beginning of this century that this is a break it or make it century. Either we make it through on our raft through the canyon of the white water rapids of the 21st century, or we don't. Either we become the greatest generation ever to have walked on this earth, equitable, peaceful, ethical, or we choose the negatives by doing nothing, climate inequality, 
nuclear arms race, and even greater polarization. And it is, and I, I have to use this quote in the Book of Mormon. I, I'm, it's, you know, I've, I've used it in other places, but it was such a revelation for me when I, I found this quote in the Book of Mormon. One, it is the Lamb of God speaking, very nonviolent Lamb of God. Uh, and it's a woe unto the Gentiles, which is us, uh, if they harden their hearts against the Lamb of God. For the time comes, says the Lamb of God, that I will work, and here we have it, a great and marvelous work among the children of men, a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, either to the convincing of them of peace and life eternal, or to the deliverance of them to the hardness of the hearts and the blindness of their minds, to their being brought down into captivity and also to destruction, both temporally and spiritually. And I know this is a scripture that has implications because many people interpret and might interpret it differently. So, but I still put it out there because it fits with James Martin's uh, vision of the 21st century, which is it's a break it or make it. And um, so what can we do? I mean, ultimately, when we read the scriptures, that's a bit the point, isn't it? And what do we do with this? What, what, what does this bring us to do? Um, Community of Christ has, over the last 10 years, thought deeply about our mission, about its mission, and sought to align it with Christ's mission to the world. The one he proclaimed when he read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue as recorded in Luke 4. For the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to proclaim good news unto the poor. In essence, the kingdom of God is near. Was John the Baptist and Jesus's message to a people that was under occupation, under foreign rule, and the quality of that kingdom was made clear in the words of Isaiah. The first subversive act in any society is to imagine a better one. The role of ethical dissenters again. Who are we to imagine a better world than the one we have inherited? Can we reclaim the great and marvelous work of wonder for our own time and place? Why are we doomed to fail? Seek to bring forth and establish my Zion, it says in one of the chapters we had to read today, one of the sections for today. What birthing still needs to be done? Where do we start? In Isaiah 11, we read of Eden restored, climate justice. Wolf and lamb die, lie down, wolf and lamb lie down together with a little child. We believed this in the early restoration. We know it from the articles of faith, it's there. Return the earth to its paradisiacal glory. Do we believe it now? In Isaiah 2, our swords will be beaten into plowshares and the law shall go forth out of Zion. Nations will disarm and we will learn war no more. Contextually, in our context today, I mean, can this become a reality? 
for the most part, it's only peace movements who use this scripture to give us a vision of God's shalom, God's peace in the world, not just in our hearts, but between nations. Where are we on that? And actually, Isaiah 2 is the scripture about the temple or the house of the Lord up in the mountains. So I know for a fact that the, uh, that LDS uh, readings of the scripture are very much linked to temple and temple theology. But we normally skip verse four. Uh, and I think verse four is at the center of the meaning of this particular scripture. And finally, Isaiah 61, a liberated people, a land of milk and honey becomes the burning imaginative vision of a future that could be within reach. So what is the role of religious groups then and of restoration movements in particular? How can we contribute to the great vision of God's peace and justice and of the mission of, and of the mission of Christ in the world? Can we be part of the great transition away from a fossil fuel economy? The stones we make into bread? Uh, can we be part of the great transition away from a military industrial complex? The stones we make into weapons? And away from a tax haven corporatism covered with lies or covered by lies? the stories we tell of our own, for our own conceit to reassure ourselves that everything is just okay. Looking at the New Testament and what we can take from it, we are called to have all things in common, to love our enemies and to become a new, new humanity, a new creation in Christ. Early Christians shared all things in common and were partakers of the heavenly gift. Acts 2 and Acts 4, very important in the early uh, restoration history and still is for many of us. We become all one family and we must look after one another. Early Christians suffered persecution and loved their enemies and did not retaliate. As one humanity, they become, we become no longer strangers, nor foreigners, but fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. And through initiations like baptism, all early Christians become equal heirs to the kingdom. This is the rebirth. We don't become perfect. This has, this, this has taken me a long time to figure this out, uh, but I've started to see it in the following way. We don't become perfect, but we start seeing each other perfectly as equals. Death, they say, is the great equalizer and spiritual rebirth should be no different. Let me explain this with a few more couple of slides where I will explore Doctrine and Covenants sections in Community of Christ from the last 10 years, where these three mission statements or three mission initiatives I explored scripturally um, and provides a bit more meat to the bones. First of all, what does having all things in common mean to you? 
how does this understanding of God's kingdom challenge ideas you might have about economic control and the concentration of economic power in the hands of a few? God, the eternal creator, weeps for the poor, displaced, mistreated, and deceased of the world because of their unnecessary suffering. Such conditions are not God's will. Open your ears to hear the pleading of mothers and fathers in all nations who desperately seek a future of hope for their children. Do not turn away from them, for in their welfare resides your welfare. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 163, 4a. Love your enemies. What does loving your enemies mean to you? How does this understanding of God's kingdom challenge ideas you might hold about the use of force and violence in establishing peace through victory over others? And here in Doctrine and Covenants 163, 3b and c, above all else, Strive to be faithful to Christ's vision of the peaceable kingdom of God on earth. Courageously challenge cultural, political, and religious trends that are contrary to the reconciling and restoring purposes of God. Pursue peace. There are subtle yet powerful influences in the world, some even claiming to represent Christ, that seek to divide people and nations to accomplish their destructive aims. And that which seeks to harden one human heart against one another or against another by constructing walls of fear and prejudice is not of God. And finally, new humanity. This is a new topic for us in Community of Christ. And I, I think we, we uh, continue to explore it uh, further as we... Um, as we seek to become a prophetic people. What does becoming a new creation mean to you? How does an understanding of being equal with others in God's peaceable kingdom challenge ideas you might hold about the control some wield over the power of story and truth-making as we try to make sense of our place in the world today? It is imperative to understand that when you're truly baptized into Christ, you become part of a new creation. By taking on the life and mind of Christ, you increasingly view yourselves and others from a changed perspective. Former ways of defining people by economic status, social class, sex, gender, or ethnicity no longer are primary. Through the gospel of Christ, a new community of tolerance, reconciliation, unity and diversity and love is being born as a visible sign of the coming reign of God. And the visible sign of the coming reign of God is how we start, we've started to kind of talk about Zion in Community of Christ. Um, this is in, found in Doctrine and Covenants 164 verse 5. And just to add a personal note on this one, this is a scripture that came uh, to the church uh, before I got baptized. Uh, 
this was at a period where we were still struggling in Community of Christ, and I would say we still are struggling to figure out what it means to have LGBT members of the church uh, in full equal participation. And um, when I saw this Doctrine and Covenants 164 and that it had come out, I said, if they can take a chance on me, I'm willing to take a chance on them. And I got baptized. So what are the keys ultimately? You know, uh, John the Baptist presents himself to Oliver Cowdery and, and Joseph Smith and, um, and presents them the keys. Um, we know that they are not literal keys, at least none of the illustrations we have of that particular event is John the Baptist handing over keys. But I've always thought about what are those keys? What, what, you know, what do they represent? Um, so just going back to my notes, well, I don't have that particular note, so I'll just say it out of my mind. Uh, for me, the keys represent the kingdom, uh, the keys to open the gates of heaven on earth. That's what priesthood is about. Um, we are uh, and the answer to that, I found it in Matthew 23:13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of, of heaven against men and women. For neither do you go in yourselves, and neither do you suffer them that are entering to go in. So my take here is that priesthood members, the priesthood is not about being gatekeepers to the kingdom of heaven on earth and making sure who to keep out and who to keep in. On the contrary, and this is why I think uh, there is some beauty in the word ushering and ushers. We are meant to usher people in. We're called to usher in the millennial kingdom. Let us bring all to enjoy the blessings of the new era of restoration. And finally, let me just end on these three promises that we might have made and we haven't necessarily realized we have. But having taken you through this uh, lesson, I think it is worth ending on these reflections. Where am I now in relation to sharing wisely what I have? Where am I now in terms of choosing peace over violence? And where am I now in terms of influencing others? For good. Oops. Ellery, thank you so much um, for your insights. And um, this has just been a beautiful lesson. I, I'm thinking maybe we should just go ahead and officially close and then uh, have a conversation.
So Becky, or do you want to say, you wanted to say something about- Yeah, um, I think I'll just explain it. I'll just explain yeah. that uh, in Community of Christ Temple, we, we don't have any uh, elaborate ceremonies or anything like that. We, we have, although one daily ritual, which is uh, a daily prayer for peace, and, uh, uh, and we pray every day at 1 p.m. Uh, in, uh, well, that would be Midwestern time. I don't know, Independence time. Uh, I have a friend who calls it Zion time. Uh, you know, we, we, we have at 1 p.m. Uh, this daily prayer for peace that is a constant uh, reminder that all nations need to be prayed for because that's where, uh, I think that's where the peace starts, uh, a global peace that we would like to see. So um, I'll, uh, I'll let uh, Becky uh, end with the prayer for peace that was written for today. My understanding this is for Slovenia um, by Bill Miner. We come to you now desiring to bring about peace in our world. The peace we desire need not be one of total harmony, even as a musical peace may have discordant passages. For as in music out of harmony and discord emerge the composer's dream. The peace we desire is a constantly creative environment resulting from the synergy of the gifts, talents, and responses of all humanity. The peace we desire is one in which we actively lead and participate in relieving human and environmental suffering. We feel that process must fundamentally be one of education. We wonder, is this the peace you desire? We ask for you to be our director and allow us to play your composition as you wish. We ask you to help us listen to your will so your peaceful desires will also be ours. We ask for the strength of your spirit to help us actively and energetically bring about this peace. These things we pray through Jesus the Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts.